1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. Uh, the title of the message that is recorded on the back of your bulletin is not correct. It should read, Bought with a Price. Bought with a Price. And Greg is going to open the scriptures to us in just a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. We're in a sermon series unpacking the Christian mindset. We're going through 1 Corinthians, looking at um, how Paul addressed controversies in the early church and He doesn't just say, do this, do that, but he unpacks the heart of what Christians believe and says, because of what we believe, this is what we should do. Um, So today's passage is about sexual morality. Um, And before we jump in, I want to say three things. And of course, I'll have three more things to say. Um, So first, if you're wondering, oh, is it safe for the kids to be here? It's totally PG. How do you know? My mom is going to be here. Um, So I'm keeping it clean. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, this is a big, big topic, um, so I have to admit that it's, it's a little on the longer side, um, so I'll try to speak fast or something. Um, and even so, I'm not going to hit everything that you want me to say or I want to say. Um, and third, you know, this has been a, this is a hard uh, topic to preach. Um, and you might say, well, you know, of course, because, you know, both inside and outside the church, Biblical teaching on sex, people find it at best irrelevant and at worst offensive. Um, But that's, you know, whatever. That's a challenge. Fine. Um, I'm up for that. Uh, No, the reason this is a hard topic is because, you know, when it comes to this, uh, a lot of us have a lot of shame and pain. And if I just start a teaching, you know, I don't want want to throw salt on wounds. I don't want people to feel like this is just an intellectual exercise. Like, I know for a lot of us, this is really... It really hurts. Um, So before we do anything, uh, I just want to pray for that, um, and then we'll get going. So let's bow our heads. God, on the cross, you bore not only our sins, but you bore all of our sufferings, all of our hurts. You bore um, 
our sickness and our sorrow. And so, God, we bring our pain and our hurt to you. And God, I pray that you would release your healing power in this room. God, to to open our hearts to receive your good news for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. So, we're going to look at three things. Christian view of the body, our relationship with God, and the Christian hope. So, first, the body. I mean, this passage is is full of of the word body. It's all about the body. Um, And behind every culture's teaching on sex is an underlying belief about the nature of the human person. Because what we believe that we are uh, determines what we believe we should do with, with our mind, with our body, with our money, with our time. You know, it sort of follows, right? Um, and so we see that here. In the beginning of this passage, Paul is quoting things that other people have said. Uh, and, you know, it's easy to misread this and think, oh, this is Paul giving his his advice here, but no, he's, he's quoting dominant views of the time, and he does this throughout the book. Um, and these statements reflect opposing views that the Corinthians are, are invoking to justify, you know, what they're doing. And Paul engages and shows that these opposing viewpoints are quite distinct from Christian beliefs. So what are, what are these opposing views? Well, in the Greco-Roman pagan world, People believe that human beings were fundamentally a soul. There's this ghost in the machine view of humanity. So the real you is your soul and your, your body is like a house. But the thing that really matters is the non-material you. The thing that lasts forever is the non-material you. And this, this view is called dualism, right? Because there's this dual nature to humans, the soul and the body. And the true ruling nature is the soul. Um, And that's the real you. This is the Platonic view. It comes from Plato. And it is deeply ingrained in Western culture. So it might surprise you that this is not the biblical worldview. Okay? But our culture is so influenced by Greek thought, we we don't even realize when we've bought into something that's not Christian. So, salvation, in the Greek view was escaping the bodily realm and living on as your soul in a disembodied, ethereal, non-material world. That's the goal of life. Leave the physical realm and live in a non-material realm. The non-material realm, the realm of the soul is good, and the body, the realm of the body, the physical world is evil and it's bad. So the soul is the real you, but you you still have to figure out, well, what do you do with your body? You still have it. Um, And so there were two perspectives on this. And Paul addresses them both at different times. Um, So one view was since the material world was bad and evil, bodily urges should be avoided. Okay, the body is bad, the soul is good, so do not indulge the body. All right, so it would degrade your soul. It would corrupt the real you. That was the view. So gluttony is bad. Seeking physical pleasure is bad. And so sex, of course, was obviously bad. On the other hand, there were those who argued pretty much the opposite. They said, look, your body isn't the real you, so who cares what you do with it? You have a stomach so you can eat food. It's an appetite, so eat. You, incidentally, have sexual organs so you can have sex. It's an appetite, so have sex. It's just an appetite. That's all it is. It's not good. It doesn't do anything to the real you. It doesn't do anything to your soul, so go for it, whatever. 
And in either case, both of these views, the have all the sex you want and don't have any sex, were both based on the idea that the body was less important and less real, less really you than the soul. And, as we'll discuss, that's just not the biblical view. In either case, sex is just an appetite which we should either avoid or indulge. Now, the licentious view is the one that Paul is is primarily addressing here in this passage. The Corinthians think they can do whatever they want with their bodies because it's the state of their soul is all that matters. Now, and this is important. They thought they were making a Christian argument based on salvation. But they were making a pagan, non-Christian argument. Why? What's going on? Well, they smuggled in this pagan view of the soul and the body. And so they said, hey, our souls, the real us, our souls are redeemed. Right? Good, news of, good news of Jesus. We have salvation of the part that really matters, so it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies. But they had the wrong view of the soul. They had the wrong view of the body. They had the wrong view of salvation. They completely misunderstood the resurrection. Now, the dominant view today is if it feels good, do it. And part of this we get from the Greeks, and part of this is the influence of materialism. So that's the idea that the body is all that there is. You don't just have a body. You are a body. You're nothing more than the physical stuff. You're just chemical reactions and neurons firing in your brain. So your mind is just chemical reactions in your brain. Your pleasure, your pain, your desires, your depression, your deepest longings are just chemical reactions. And so in this view, again, sex is just an appetite. Because what else could it be? There's nothing more to you than chemical reactions. So, you know, but the problem is really nobody believes this. Even people who have a materialistic worldview, nobody believes this about sex. Um, So first, in what society do people pay billions of dollars a year to watch other people eat apples? Right? No other appetite is like that. Right? And, And this is an appetite that is never satiated. Right? The more we have apples all around us, um, the more people are eating apples all the time, and, and, we have, and more people are watching people eat apples, the more the desire for apples seems to grow. This isn't an appetite like any other, to put it mildly. So, but second, do you know, some of you might remember this, some of you definitely don't. Um, in the 80s, do you know how y- uh, many young people responded when STDs and AIDS were just devastating um, people who were having casual sex. So if it was an appetite, you might say, like, you know, if you have diabetes, you're like, you know, I love sugar, but... Um, But they didn't say, oh, this isn't good anymore. We should maybe plan a little, be a little more careful. that, That isn't what they said. They said, dangerous or not, we have a right to spontaneous casual sex. Despite the danger, despite the threat... Life is not worth living if we don't have sex this way. That was what people said. And it's not an appetite. And, but very briefly, there's a, there's a much, much bigger problem with the sex is an appetite view. And just appetites don't get violated. We know that there's more at stake than an appetite when we talk about the pain and the suffering, or the guilt or the shame, these are more than just chemical reactions. 
Right? We, we don't talk about this side of sex that way, and, and we shouldn't. So what then is the biblical view of the body? Okay, if that's the Greek view or the modern view, well, you know, Paul here says some pretty amazing things, right? So he says, he says the body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. Right? That's kind of weird, right? Um, he says our bodies are members with Christ. He says our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And the word is literally body. He's not using like some like metaphorical. He's like our physical bodies. He's saying all of this stuff. The biblical view is not that human beings are dualistic, but holistic. The human person is a holistic, good creation of body and spirit. So we don't have a soul in our body. We are a soul with our body. We are a good, holistic creation of body and spirit. And the biblical view is that the material world is good. Unlike every other view, the material world is it's not the result of conflict between gods. It's not an illusion to transcend. Uh, it's not all there is. There's more to what we see, which means we can actually say something about what we see. The material world, the Bible says, is the result of a good, loving God who created all things out of love. And you, your body, God says is very good. I mean, God took on a body in Jesus. Right? The Greeks would never say that. The gods would never degrade themselves by taking on flesh. And furthermore, Orthodox Jews at the time wouldn't say that either because God was transcendent. But the transcendent God took on flesh. And the promise of the resurrection is for a new creation. We're promised to live in a new earth, which is physical and bodily and full of touch and sight and sounds and holding each other. It's not an ethereal, disembodied destiny. Jesus was bodily raised because the body is a fundamental part of who we are and what God made us for. Christians don't long to, to go to heaven and play harps and sort of float around. We long for the restoration of our physical bodily world and for God to be completely present with us in that world. We await the resurrection of our bodies and the, resurrect, the restoration of heaven and earth united as one. If you're longing only to, to go to heaven and escape this world, you're not longing for the rich hope of the Bible, but for the thin aspirations of Greek philosophers. Okay. And this is quite honestly the highest view of creation that there is in, in, in any worldview or philosophy or religion, because creation is just too good to leave out of eternity. The new heavens and the new earth are far better than, than flying around with harps. Okay. So that's the high Christian view of the body. So, but what does that mean for our relationship with God? Well, Paul, Paul does something very important here. Because first he tells us the things our bodies are for, right? He says our bodies are for the Lord Jesus. It's a, our bodies are a temple for the Holy Spirit. And right, those descriptions already give us a vivid picture, right? But then Paul says much more than that. When Paul quotes, the two shall become one flesh, he's making a profound point here. It's very significant. So that verse you might know is from Genesis 2. 
And it's quoted all over the Bible. So after God makes Adam in the garden, a suitable helper could not be found. Now that word helper, every other place in the Bible is used to refer to God. God is our help. And it's often used in a military context. So Psalm 121 says, I lift my eyes to the hills. Right? I'm sort of taking, taking a view of military ground. And where does my help come from? And the Bible says Adam needed a human person like God suitable for him. To help him the way God helps him. So God creates Eve for the specific person, purpose of being that complementary, suitable help that Adam lacked. And when Adam sees Eve for the first time, he breaks into song singing, At last, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And then the Bible says, For this reason, man shall leave his parents and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You see, the biblical view of marriage is a unity of mind and body, of soul, much richer than any other culture believes. You read through Proverbs, and the biblical picture of marriage is of best friends who respect each other and delight in each other and find each other physically ravishing. One flesh. Now, before we can understand how that one fleshness happens... We need to discuss one more thing, and that's what makes it possible. Okay? So like we said, this verse appears throughout the Bible. And in Ephesians 5, Paul is talking about Christian marriage. He's talking about husbands laying down their lives for their wives. And he says this, the two shall become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Now, a mystery in the Bible is always something that is eventually revealed. God is a revealer of mysteries. It doesn't just mean, oh, who can know? So Paul's saying, look, for centuries we've all looked at marriage and we've thought, there's, there's something mysterious here. There's more than meets the eye. And Paul's saying, yes, there's more than meets the eye because marriage and sex and the soul and body and one flesh, is everything, it's about Christ and the church. There's something about how God has designed it that points to the reality of God's relationship with his people. How? Well, the heart of marriage and the heart of God's relationship with his people is covenant. And a covenant is a relationship, but it's a relationship that's more loving and intimate than a purely legal relationship, but it's more binding and enduring and accountable than just a personal one. And the heart of a covenant is a promise. And throughout the Old Testament, God makes promises to his people. So he tells to Noah, he says, I promise to never again wipe away the earth with a flood. God knows that humanity is going to continue in evil. And he binds himself saying, I am going to find another way to deal with evil. He promises Abraham to bless him, to make him a blessing to all nations. And he confirms these promises in Genesis 15, if you with, uh, with a ritual that basically communicates, if I don't keep my promise, may I be torn apart. May I be torn to shreds. God is saying, my promises depend on me. The foundation of God's relationship to us is God's promise to be our God. And we are covenant people loved by a covenant God. 
And our hope and salvation rest in God's promises. And so the heart of this one fleshness in marriage is a promise. In the, in the Bible, marriage is built on a covenant. Marriage is not primarily about expressing love. Who does that? It's not primarily economics or finance or building up the family. It does that too. Um, but marriage is about a promise. A promise to be there for your spouse in the future. Right? The point of a promise is that it binds. Right? When you promise your kid, I will be at your game next week. It's because your kid knows without that promise, you won't be there. Right? We know we'll be tempted to break it. And that's why we bind ourselves to our spouse saying, though my future self will want to desert you, will want to let you down, though my future self will selfishly turn away from us, I'm binding myself to you now. I am tying myself to the mast so that when I hear the sirens calling, I won't jump overboard. And that is how God loves us. And that is how the Bible calls us to love our spouse in marriage. Marriage is about two becoming one in everything. Marriage is promising all of yourself, not only now, but till death do us part. You're giving all of yourself, all your present and all your future to your spouse. Because that's the promise God makes to us. It's a mutual self-giving act that leads to unity. It's not an exchange. It's not a transaction. It's two complete self-giving acts that make one new thing. So, one more little aside. Uh, you know, secular materialism, it's not really the worldview that tempts most people. It's not, I'm going to be a Christian or an atheist. Nothing in between. You know, instead, we're tempted by this false belief that God is remote. That, you know, he wants us to be good, but, I mean, he doesn't really have that high of standards. And if you're not so good, you can sort of make up for it later. And all he wants for us is to be happy. God wants us to be happy. Right? God's a therapeutic God. And, you know, he wants us to be good, but more than that, he wants us to be happy. And, and on our terms, that's fine, too. And maybe he, he doesn't really get that involved in our lives, except, you know, maybe if we really need a boost or like some divine deep affirmation. That's the view of God that most tempts us. But do you realize how different that view is from the covenant-making God who pledges in utter holiness to love us? God wants so much more for us than our happiness. And he's not remote. He has bound himself to us. He loves us because in utter holiness he has promised to love us. That's a love that truly affirms and transforms us. That's a love that desires our holiness, that God binds himself to us for our good. I mean, no other religion presents a God like that. So our relationship with God is a deep, personal, covenant relationship. And, you know, most of us think, yeah, okay, personal relationship with God sounds pretty good. There's a rub. In any personal relationship, the person you're in a relationship with, they have to be able to contradict you. I mean, they have to have a will outside of your own. Otherwise, that's just a one-way. It's not a relationship. You don't have a relationship that can transform you or that can make you more than who you are if the person doesn't have any claim on you. 
So if you want a deep, transformative relationship with God, God's will must be higher than yours. So if you find God commanding you to do things that you think are crazy, well, that could be a sign that you actually have a personal relationship with him. So long as you actually, you know, obey what he says. Um, So our relationship with God is a deep, personal, covenant promise relationship. And marriage and sex mysteriously point to that reality. And so Paul tells the Corinthians, don't you dare have sex with anyone you haven't made that complete life-giving covenant promise with. In verse 18, he says, flee from sexual morality. He says, don't find the boundary and just sort of stay in the lines. He says, head in the opposite direction. Flee. Now, you might be wondering, hold on, Greg. What does sexual immorality really mean? And we could argue in English all we want. The Greek word is really clear. Um, So the Greek says, flee porneia. And that word porneia, wherever it shows up in the New Testament and throughout the Bible, it means sex outside of marriage. And when you see the context and how it's used with Genesis 2, it's, it's pretty clear. So that's what it means. Flee that. Now, before we go further, let me be clear what Paul is not saying when he says flee porneia. Paul doesn't say, if you've had sex outside of marriage, you're ruined. I mean, otherwise, why even bother talking to the Corinthians? Just be like, you're out. That's not what he said. Sex does not make you damaged goods. Sex does not make you dirty and ruined. I mean, look at how Jesus dealt with prostitutes and women caught in adultery. I mean, maybe you've heard otherwise, but look at what Jesus did and look at what Jesus says. Paul also doesn't say, The chaste shall by thy chastity earn salvation. For the rest of us, maybe there's grace. Right? It's funny because we know we don't earn our salvation. But, you know, maybe this is one area where you really can earn it or lose it. No. Sex doesn't keep you from God any more than anger, greed, gossip, dishonoring your parents, worshiping idols, living for financial stability, whatever. You know, there's a long list. Okay, so it's not those things. Why does Paul say Corinthians flee from sexual immorality? Because sex and marriage point to the covenant reality of God's love for us. God created sex for covenant oneness. God created sex for the context of a husband and wife who have completely given themselves every part now and in the future to form one flesh. There's a mystery to it. The mystery of Genesis 2 is that this points to Christ and that sex created to reflect and enact that complete oneness and self-giving that, that exists in marriage. And again, if you say, well, how? It's, there is, it's mysterious. Um, and this means that sex outside of that context, outside its creative context, points away from God. So sex in its context points to how God loves us and binds himself to us. But out of its context, it points away. And because it's more than an appetite, it's more than just chemical reactions firing, sex outside of marriage draws us away from God. Sex outside of covenant love is not a reflection of covenant love. And that's the danger. Flee from sexual morality because it will draw you farther away from God. And this is why Paul is so worried and making a big deal. 
you might not even know that you're drawing yourself away. You might say, that's a strong conclusion. Okay, well. In a covenant, sex communicates. I have given every part of myself to you. I've given to the point that we are one flesh, now until I die. This embodies that promise. But outside of that, sex communicates. I've given my body to you, but not all of me. I'm giving my body to you, but, but not all of me, and maybe only for right now, and probably not in the future. So there's fundamentally a transactional nature to sex. I'm not giving you all of me. I'm giving you part of me. There's a limit to our oneness. There's a limit to what I'll give you. I'm not committed to this relationship. So if, if things go wrong, I'll leave. If things aren't working out, I'll leave. I haven't promised to be here no matter what. When this relationship stopped working, whatever that means, you can't count on me to be here. So I'm willing to give you sex. I'm willing to receive sex from you, but I'm not willing to give you all of me. And that means you necessarily require something of the other person. If that thing is lacking in the relationship, the siren's call, you're out. And Paul says, unless you have given all of you, which includes all of your power and status and influence, he says, you may not have to take sex from the other person. And do you realize how radically subversive this was? I mean, in the, in the Roman world, it was extremely hierarchical. It was very clear who had power and who didn't, who had status and who didn't, whether it was based on, you know, what you did or what your gender was or who owned you, whatever it was, it was very hierarchical. So you can imagine when people had sex outside of marriage, who do you think continued to have all the power? Who do you think was more often a victim? And Paul is saying into that world, if you have status and class and power, you may not have sex with somebody unless you give and unite all of your influence and status and power with them. So this turns the world of status and power on its head. The powerful may not use their social dominance to get sex. I mean, do, do you think today is any different from Rome? Uh, of course, you might, you might think, Greg, that's all nice, but we love each other. You may, you, may, you may, indeed, quite a bit. But do you love each other enough to promise your future self to them? Right? Do you love each other enough to be completely united, not only physically now, not only emotionally in the present, but in everything in your life now and in the future, no matter what comes your way, no matter what sirens are singing in the future? And you, you, know, you might say, you know, that sounds crazy. Who... Who would do that? Well, that's how God loves you. Okay, so that's the view of the body and the view of salvation. You know, but some of you might be thinking that maybe positively you say that sounds good, fine, maybe inspiring, uh, but it's too much. Maybe 2,000 years ago when people got married at 13, they could do that. But today it's just too hard. God couldn't ask that from me. And, you know, I don't want to minimize the struggle. It's hard. This is asking a lot. Um, you, might, you might be like, nope, that's not me. This is my response. This is not good news. Why is God demanding what I do with my body good news? Oh, and that personal relationship thing. What claim do I have on God? Well, there's an old Christian catechism that asks, 
What is your only comfort in life and death? And if you think God is remote and he doesn't really care how you live and he just wants you to be happy, I mean, how do you answer that? How do you answer that? But if you know the biblical God, if you know the gospel, then you know your greatest problem is how can an infinite holy, infinitely holy, awesome God of all creation love me? I don't deserve that. So the catechism says, my one comfort in life and death is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul to Jesus Christ. My one comfort is that I belong to a covenant God who in utter love and holiness has promised to love me as his bride. And that's why Paul finishes this section here by saying, you are not your own if you are bought with a price. God's promise to Abraham, saying, I will be your God, even if it means I will be torn apart, Jesus fulfilled on the cross. Because we never hold up our end of the covenant. God says, obey, and we flee. We want his gifts, but not the giver. Our relationship with God is transactional. And when it doesn't deliver, we flee from our creator. We flee from the one who has promised to love us and to bless us. And God could have said, enough, have it your way. But instead, God let his promises bind him. The nails didn't bind Jesus on the cross. He could have come down if he wanted to. His love bound him. His promises to have you bound him. And do you know what Jesus didn't have in heaven that he had to come to earth in the flesh and die to get? It wasn't his father's love. He had that. It wasn't all dominion and authority. It's not like earth was, you know, off doing its own thing. It was you, his bride. Jesus came to the earth in the flesh, lived a perfect life, and died the only death that could bring us back to God. To love you as his spouse, to be one flesh with you. God didn't promise a personal relationship in which he couldn't be hurt. In which he couldn't be affected by our needs. God let it kill him. God let it tear him apart. God was willing to and did pay an infinite cost to have that relationship. And if you belong to Jesus, there is nothing you can do to separate yourself from him. You were bought with a price. You were bought with the blood of Jesus. You cannot nullify that purchase. You cannot break God's promises to be for you if you belong to him. You're not your own. This is the best hope in the world. This is our one comfort in life and death. And when Christ returns, you will be raised bodily with him. You will have physical pleasure and spiritual ecstasy beyond anything we can hope for and imagine in this world. So we aren't missing out. If you're single, the good news is you don't need sex and marriage to have profound intimacy with God. Sex and marriage, they point to that. That's the greater thing, is the relationship we can have with God, no matter what our uh, status is. And no guilt or shame, nothing from our past that we've done or that's happened to us 
can separate us from the love of Christ and the hope and restoration he offers. Let's pray. God, we thank you that we are not our own, but that you gave your life to buy us. God, we pray that we would be comforted um, by your love for us, and that we would live one flesh with you, our maker, our redeemer, and our true husband. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, As always, if you want prayer, um, please come up afterwards and find a leader in the church. Um, And let's... Let's stand for the benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let us go forth proclaiming our Savior's resurrection until he comes. Amen.